What is the office of the key? The office of the key is that special authority which Christ has given to his church on earth to forgive the sins of repentant sins, but to withhold forgiveness from the unrepentant as long as they do not repent. Where is this written? This is what St. John the Evangelist in chapter 20. The Lord Jesus breathed on his disciples and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone who sins, they are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. What do you believe according to these words? Believe that we're called Jesus Christ, deal with us by his divine in particular, when they exclude all the unrepentant sinners from the Christian congregation and absorb the goals of repentance their sins and want to be better, this is just as valid even in heaven as if Christ our Grace, mercy, and peace be to you from God our Father and from our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. We spoke last week about the table of duties. Table of duties, especially given to all Christians as to the various hats that we all wear based on our baptism and the various places and networks into the world that God has placed us. As fathers, as workers, as mothers, as people in the civic life of the United States of America, all kinds of ways that our service is asked for in the world. And on the basis of scripture, we find many places where the Lord has already provided direction for those callings. This topic brings us to a gift that we all hold collectively on the basis of our baptisms, first of all, the power of forgiveness of sins. When someone sins against you, you are to forgive them. That is your job. To withhold forgiveness for someone who is repentant is an act of rebellion against your God. You are the person who is there to do the forgiving, to speak the word of forgiveness. Now, all of us hold that in common. We're all based on our baptism to be forgiving people, just as Jesus describes in various places and various ways through his parables and so forth. But then what happens when we all come together? No one of us has more authorization or authority to forgive one another than anyone else. And so what we have done is we have, as the church, together, called one of us to exercise that authority, what we say is publicly, publicly in the, in the context of the Christian congregation, so that we're not jumping back and forth and saying, well, I forgive them, I forgive them, and you don't forgive them, and you don't forgive them, but we have a sense of order about how all of this works. And so for the sake of the forgiveness of sins, for the sake of the preaching of the word and the declarations of grace, 
the work of absolving sins, we set aside and find various oaths on pastors. We prepare them, we examine them, we set them aside for that particular office, just like just like policemen are set aside for their office, and just like firemen are set aside for their office, or for judges and others that are prepared and invested with authority. We ask them to be trained, we ask them to be examined, we ask them to know exactly what their responsibilities are and to not move outside of their lanes, but we give them together an office. And when I was growing up, this was confusing to me because, well, my dad was a pastor and I knew where his office was. It was right through that back door around the corner and there was a big desk and there was a chair and there was eventually a computer and all of the rest of that. And I said, just because he's got that room back there, he can forgive my sins. I didn't know what an office In German, it's a Stadt, a, a, a place of authority. The one who is given the office to say and make judgments. Just like when, if you were to go to a justice of the peace and to have vows of marriage exchanged there at the justice of the peace, that's the person who can say, I now pronounce you husband and wife. And before you went there and heard that, you weren't husband and wife. But after you heard that word, you are. They say it, and it is so. Kind of like, you almost like to have somebody standing there with a bucket of water. To say after they say husband and wife, they throw the bucket of water on you so you know that something really had happened. Because otherwise, it kind of can be just there. But the thing is, it's the power of that word assigned to the person who is bearing that office. To take another example in terms of the judicial system, when the verdict is announced by the judge, the verdict takes effect. You're either innocent or guilty. And until that moment happens, you're presumed innocent, but once the verdict is announced, you are either innocent or guilty until the next appeals take their way. Of course, in baseball, this has gotten a little bit fuzzy. We can't just go with what the umpire says anymore because you can have instant replay. See if it really was just the way, because you've got another set of umpires at another place. Okay? Then just kind of kick the can down the road, further up the chain, man. So you have got an instant appeal, I suppose, before that. So the person who bears the office has the responsibility then to bear that office with integrity and with the appropriate discernment. And this is why we ask those people to go through a certain amount of training and a certain amount of cultivating in their own spiritual life and care so that they then are prepared to take certain vows as well that are beyond what we ask of other members to take. So, for example, in two weeks' time, we're going to have Confirmation Day. Confirmation Day on June 4th, I've heard you all of the here, 
On that day, we're going to ask five of our baptized members to publicly say that the faith of the church is their personal faith as well. That they're going to stand alongside us in sharing that faith and sharing in this service together, not just sharing in this power, but in sharing in the mission of God together with us here. And that they are going to be sharing their gifts and receiving our love as well as we encourage one another in the faith of Jesus Christ based on our baptism together and based on his story that he's shared with us that they are also a part of. All of that kind of thing is going to be going on for confirmation. We're going to ask them to commit themselves to hearing the word of God, Old Testament and New Testament. We call them the prophetic, the Old Testament scriptures, and the, and the apostolic New Testament scriptures. And to live within us together here under the uh, discipline of the church as they've come to know it through the small catechism. The small catechism is one of those documents that identify what it is to be a Lutheran Christian. But there are nine other ones as well. And pastors are asked to do a very similar kind of, of right, but we don't get off with just the small catechism. You're going to be a pastor, you have to read all of those other documents as well. And you have to understand all the things that they affirm as well as all the things that they reject. And you have to come to the point where you're equipped to also live and read scripture and run along with that teaching. All the things that we have learned from the first days of creation until now. And so pastors are held to that higher standard, as well as a higher standard of life. Because there are plenty of things that I can be forgiven for, just as you are. In fact, everything I can be forgiven for. But that doesn't mean I get to stay a pastor if I do things that are going to bring shame on the church in such a way. There's a, a whole list of those things, too. It comes in a separate book as well. There's little retreats that we go on with new church workers to let them know all the things that they can do to, well, instead of being given a staff, like we saw at Good Shepherd Sunday, you get given a, a, a spatula and your staff gets taken away because now you're going to go find a job at Wendy's. Turn in your staff, here's your spatula. So you can be forgiven, that's not really the issue, but can you continue to bear the office of the church? That becomes the issue. So when those things can happen, the person can lose their office. This is not something that is, it is not something that is necessarily eternal as far as that goes. Other thing that comes specifically into play here too is confession and absolution. And that's part of where this particular set of paragraphs finds its place in the category. Because in Luther's day, there really was no such thing as a general confession and absolution. What we did at the beginning of the service today, where 
you all confessed I formed a circle center and I said I could give you all your sins and they would follow someone. That didn't exist. Every occasion of confession and absolution was always private confession and absolution. These were one-on-one -on -one conversations. There was no general confession and absolution. That didn't come in until the 1880s. So that's a very new innovation in the church. So in his mind and in his writing, one of the concerns that would be raised is kind of twofold. One, that the pastor would know his job. That the pastor would be there to be the forgiveness person. That, that they would be set aside not to hold people's sins over their heads, especially as they were repenting, but that they would speak a word of, I forgive you. I forgive you all your sins on the basis of your baptism and on the basis of the work of Jesus Christ, his death, his resurrection, and his ongoing work. In fact, it's a good reason to talk about this after celebrating Ascension Day. Because Jesus doesn't go to the right hand of the throne of God in order to disappear somewhere. It's so that he can be speaking to you his gospel word whenever and wherever you are on the, on the timeline or in the geography of the world. So that when you are confronted by the Ten Commandments and you recognize your sins humbly, that you confess them before the Lord, that word of forgiveness comes to you. And that is the exercise of the reign and rule of God for your benefit. That's what he's doing. It's forgiving sins. He is retaining and making sure that the gospel that he led and died for is going into your ears so that you can trust it and that you can hold on to that faith and know that there isn't anything that you can do that can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus because of what you have accomplished. That the gospel word can continue to go out and work its reconciling, reconciling work by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so we have people both embedded in the world in every vocation, just as you are, but then we also have men who are set aside for the particular purpose that when the people of God come together, we know that the forgiveness of sins is going to be announced. And we can have confidence that God is speaking because of how we have set that up. Well, how we set it up. Well, how does a person become a pastor? Well, there's up to, I think now, about 16 different routes to ordination in various ways and shapes and forms. But let me just go through the standard operating procedure. When I graduated from high school, I entered into a pre-seminary program at one of our colleges. And what is a pre-seminary program? Well, pre-seminary program simply means that you're a liberal arts student or you have some other major in college, but you're also going to be along with those things, taking certain other classes, like a, another concentration, so to speak. Now, my major started out as English and my minor was history, but then by the time I got to my sophomore year of, uh, of college, I flipped those. So I ended up with a history major and a literature minor. All kinds of stuff in the English department that I wasn't really caring about. But I had seen Dead Poets Society. Here I went to 
So I thought being an English major would be a way to go. Well, we flipped that one afterwards. Worked out just fine. But along with that basic route for graduation, I took two years of Greek. I took one and a quarter years, one year and a quarter's worth of Hebrew in order to be able to pass the entrance exam so I wouldn't have to take it when I got to seminary. I took classes in Christian doctrine, which were kind of like catechism on steroids. And we took classes in Old Testament and New Testament so that you could pass those exams as well. And I still remember the one question I got wrong in my New Testament exam, which tribe of Israel is Paul from? You may know I know some of you have actually told me that you do. But he said that in, in 1 Corinthians 9, he says he's a, a Benjaminite. Well, I didn't remember. Of course, we need to get 70%. So there you go. And those tests are not really about whether you can go to seminary or not. Those tests are whether or not you need to take a preliminary class, maybe in the summertime, in order to kind of get up to speed. So then you take two years of academic work, and then generally you'd go on an internship to work in a congregation under a supervising pastor. All kinds of supervising pastors all over, sometimes internationally as well. Some of those international vicarages, those internships will last even two years because once you're there, it kind of takes some time, a little bit more time sometimes to get into the culture before you can actually start doing ministry. But then you generally come back for another year of classes and debriefing and preparing for full-time ministry. Along with that, that academic work, you're also working in a congregation. You're working with a pastor in a congregation to maybe teach a, a, a class in their Christian school or, or teaching a, a confirmation instruction unit or something like that. But kind of fracking along with a pastor in a congregation to be a part of that. One of the challenges, of course, is that a lot of congregations will have multiple pastors and they'll have multiple field workers. And so sometimes it's hard to get a whole lot of activity in. That's why sometimes we have seminary students come down to, to do a little bit of prep work or, or time with us so that they can learn the ropes of what it's like to be in a congregation. My own experience was to be at St. Louis the first year, and then I did do an exchange program my second year to go to England for a year, and did our Lutheran seminary experience there with Cambridge University. Came back for my internship, my vicarage in Colorado, and then back to St. Louis to finish up. And all that time, I needed with me to make sure I stayed on the straight and narrow. So in the course of that, not only do you take classes, but they're also encouraging you to have a, a way in your own mind of prepping your own discipleship, your own, your own work with the scriptures to, to be a fountain of life together for you, not just an academic enterprise. It was about halfway through my vicarage, my internship, when I started to realize in a little less than a year, I'm going to be a pastor. And I have to say, up until that moment, I had been having this goal, I'm going to go to the seminary. I'm going to go to the seminary. I'm going to be a pastor, but I'm going to go to the seminary. I do all these things. But then I realized that time was pretty short, and I was going to actually be a pastor. Well, I better get this stuff figured out. 
And so it dawned on me that I wasn't going to be staying in school anymore. And I guess that that was really the, the, the road that was in front of me, whether to stay in school and do more academic work and, and become an academic, so to speak, or whether to take a call and to be a pastor in a congregation. And as my vicarage and experience in congregational life deepened my own appreciation for being on the front line of the mission of God in that way, that I realized that's where I wanted to be. And so it was actually in teaching Bible class on my vicarage um, that when you see people's you know, light bulbs go off in people's heads and their eyes get bright and their composure relax as they hear the gospel of God in Jesus Christ in new and exciting ways. That was, that was what attracted me to congregational life. That, that the struggles that people were going through could be met by the gospel of Jesus right in real time and not just talked about, but that the word of the Lord could bring people immediate comfort with the questions, challenges that they were dealing with. Along with all of that, in terms of being in people with their in their hospital sides and in their bedsides and dealing with them in preparation for baptism and confirmation classes, the whole variety of what it is to be a part of people in their congregational life really started to grow on me. And it, it, it feeds my own sense of variety and desire for that. Well, once a person is prepared and examined, then they're not a pastor yet. There, you don't graduate from seminary and just become a pastor. There's actually two ceremonies that the guys up at the, up at the seminary this weekend have undergone. There's the academic degree where they hand you the sheepskin and you've now got a, a master of divinity degree, but you're still not a pastor. You're not a pastor until you are ordained. And that's where you take your vows. A lot of times those will happen in the church service back at your home congregation or at the new congregation that is receiving you and calling you to be their pastor, where you are placed. And significantly for our text today, one of the things that you vow, not only in terms of saying, I'm going to support the uh, Old and New Testament's teaching, I'm going to teach everything that's there and not add anything to it, but one of the vows that you take is, I'm not going to divulge any of the sins that has ever confessed to me. That that is going to be a, a locked a lock box. That sins that are confessed and forgiven, as far as God is concerned, no longer exist. And they are wiped clean of the person's heart and mind. The the accusation of Satan can no longer legitimately accuse them because they have been wrong. And so you never kitchen sink people about their sin. You never, you never bring them up again. You never hold them accountable for those things. And, and that that needs to be a sacrosanct, a, an absolutely sacred bond of trust. Because otherwise, Nobody would ever avail themselves of confession and absolution. Well, I was asked recently, well, what about when the state makes uh, lists of people who are 
So people do it, are automatically have to say and testify in court about things that they know about. Well, the state can tell me I need to say, but God tells me I need to not say. And so I'm probably going to go to jail. That's the problem if that's what comes up. Because things that are devotion are forgiven by God. And I am a part of the right-hand kingdom of God in that regard. So if the state tells me I need to pop up information about somebody who's told me something back in my study, that needs to be an answer no from me. And if that means I go to prison, then I suppose we're going to have to find some pulpit supplies for a while. We'll get Dennis on that. <laughs> but this is, and I would say, uh, it's very important for pastors to go about their ministry not only in a balanced way and not only in a, a good working life relationship way, but also joyfully. Have you ever seen pastors that had scowls on their faces more often than not? These guys are not persuasive. <laughs> I, I don't want my pastor to be scowling at me all the time, and I certainly don't want to be that kind of person either. This is a beautiful life. I get to forgive people their sins. I get to be with them at every stage of life along the way, from the first days of finding out that a new babe is going to be born through their baptisms, all the way up to the funeral and afterwards as well, and everything in between. Before I went to the seminary, I asked my dad, who had been a pastor at that point for over 40 years, and who had gotten to know me pretty well. And I said, Dad, you know, am I barking up the wrong tree here? Is this, what do you think? Before I start heading down this road, because there, you know, there's other options. There's other options of how to spend a life. And he said, well, you could do it the easy way and just become a brain surgeon. <laughs> I said, yeah, what do you mean brain surgeon? He said, well, if you're a brain surgeon, all you do is brains. One brain after another. Brain this, brain that, brain this, brain that. Every day, just <clears throat> But if you're a pastor, you've got to deal with everything. And you don't know what's coming. Go ahead and plan your day. <laughs> Go ahead and plan your day, but you know the Holy Spirit is going to interrupt you. So it's all a matter of being there and available, doing the work that is there to do, but always being ready for the next thing that comes knocking at your door. And to be ready, not just in terms of having time, but to be ready for the fact that Satan is also going to be walking through that door as well. And to be spiritually fed and prepared and grounded so that these things don't throw you. That you don't become a person who's scouting. That you become a lifeblood for the people of God, for the good news of Jesus Christ, and for his power in their life. As I said, it's a good and blessed life. And we need more. We need more pastors. We need more people who are going to set themselves aside for the sake of the gospel. We need more infrastructure for congregations to be served. We need more teachers as well. About 400 calls went out for teachers that were not fulfilled this last year. 
about a hundred goals went out for pastors that were not able to be fulfilled. The average vacancy now is well over a year. Got two congregations in Bourbon and Cuba that are thinking of combining their call just so that they can get a pastor. So this is a need. It is a need for every community to have access to the word of the Lord and particularly the forgiveness of their sins so that they might have life and salvation in the name of Jesus. And so we keep encouraging anyone to consider church work as a general expression of how they're going to exercise their life in this world. But also for those men who are ready to consider being equipped and trained and brought up into the faith in such a way that they can serve the church's pastors. This is a good life and a beautiful gift to all God's people and a joyful way to spend these years in between Christ's ascension and his coming again. The Holy Spirit gives power and authority to do these things. So we're going to celebrate that next week as well. We celebrate Pentecost on Memorial Day weekend. The peace of the Lord and the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that passes all understanding. Keep your hearts and minds in his name. Amen.